Good morning, everybody. Wasn't that great? And what we're going to talk about this morning is really encapsulated in what, in what you saw here. Just want to sort of share something. Who watched the uh, opening celebration of the Olympics? Hands up. Fantastic. I am not the most patriotic person in the world, but I have to say, after watching that, I was so tempted to go and buy a British bulldog and stick one of those little vests on it. I was so, so close to doing that. Anybody, anybody that can have Isambard Kingdom Brunel and Mr. Bean in the same space has, has, my, my, has my vote completely. Uh, there's no reason I'm sharing that other than I just thought it was a great, great thing for us. I want to show you a picture, if I may. This is Francis Connell. He was born in 1922. Um, he fought in the Second World War. He's based out in Egypt, and he uh, was part of the, uh, of the RAF at that time. Not long after the war, he married his childhood sweetheart, a lady called Edna Signalton. And this is them on their wedding day. Now, to you, they are Mr. and Mrs. Connell. Uh, to me, this is Grandma and Grandad. And uh, this is them now. They've been married 68 years. Yeah, my, my granddad doesn't react like that, to be honest with you, but there's the story. <laughs> They've been married 68 years, and um, I, I've no idea what the secret is. I mean, for 68 years, she's been telling him to do stuff, and for 68 years, he's been pretending to ignore her, which is <laughs> clearly, clearly the way forward for them. And they are the worst, the worst example of healthy living. I mean, they've smoked and drank their entire life. I'm glad the youth have gone out, by the way, now. They, they are definitely the exception to the rule. And a few months ago, we... Um, my granddad turned 90, and we had like a big family celebration. We dragged everybody from all four corners of the earth back from the family. And it was the first time, probably in decades, that I was there with my cousins and my aunties and uncles and all the rest of it. And as we were there in this kind of unique event, we took a load of photographs. And there was one photograph that we took towards the end of the day where we just gathered everybody together that was part of the family. This is that photo. From Edna... And Frank, grandma and granddad. There are now six children, 11 grandchildren, and 11 great grandchildren. And the reason I want to show you this this morning is that when I was there and I was with my, my grandparents and my family, that real sense of heritage, that real sense of what legacy looks like, was, to me, was visualized in this, in this photograph the sense of stuff passing across generations. And we can think sometimes, we can go through our lives not realizing that we are leaving a legacy. We raise our families. Guys, you are leaving a legacy in the act of simply raising a family. Your very existence, like stones on a water, will send out ripple effects. Now, why am I showing you this? Well, firstly, just to demonstrate how difficult our Christmas card list is to maintain. Um, but secondly, it did speak to me. At, at, that, at that event, I thought, this is a really powerful image, and I think that's something that's important to this church. And the second thing that really got me thinking about legacy was the fact that we are in the Olympics. And Nelson spoke so eloquently into that. So not only do you have the Olympics, the main event of the Olympics, but there was a massive amount of, of resource put into the legacy. What lived beyond the main events? Regeneration of areas, transport infrastructure, and improved awareness of health and fitness, as you can see. Um, and that was really what the, 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 the Olympic legacy was all about. And it got me thinking about this. 
And yet, just a week ago or so, and I was sharing with some friends, I was still a little unsure whether this should be the message that I share this morning, to be perfectly honest with you. I committed to it a while ago that I'll talk about legacy, but as the week went on, it's a big subject, and, and you know, how, how, do you, how do you address this? And then two things happened. As I said, I watched the Olympic ceremony. I didn't watch it until later this week, actually, until Thursday of this week. And that moment when Steve Redgrave came, comes on, and he hands the flame over to the next generation... And the commentator said that he was handing the honour on to the next generation. In theory, Steve Redgrave had achieved it in his lifetime. It was his right to light that flame. And yet he chose to pass the honour onto that to kids that were just starting out. Really powerful image. And then the other thing that made me really you know, think this is the right thing to share was last night watching the, the highlights of the three gold medals, which was just so fantastic. And everybody celebrated what the guys had done and, 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 the, and what they'd achieved. But to a man and to a woman, every commentator made this statement. What an inspiration to the next generation. It's a really powerful image, a really powerful theme, I think, that's actually going through our nation at the moment. And Leon spoke a little, a little on this a few weeks ago. And he touched on the story of uh, wrapping up the series on David. And, and that sense of what was David's legacy and what's it, what does it mean to live a life of purpose. And I make no apologies. A little bit of what I will say this morning will be similar. There'll be some similar themes this morning. But please don't switch off. If you think you've heard it before, then maybe you need to hear it again. Whenever we talk about legacy, I don't know about you, I think we can fall into the trap of thinking legacy is kind of a static thing. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I live my life, I've accomplished this. This is, this is what I've left, whether it's money, whether it's family, it's a static thing. But you know what I think as believers and as Christians and as people of faith, our legacy is a lot more profound and a lot more radical than that. Our legacy really doesn't just be, live beyond us. The legacy of the Christian faith births new stories in the next generation. It kickstarts and lights a fire under the next generation of people and of followers of Christ. Powerful thing. And you see that in the Bible, from Genesis to Jesus. That sense of new ground, handing stuff on to the next generation. Jesus himself saying, greater things to his disciples, greater things that you will do in my name. There's momentum, there's forward motion. So, if legacy is so important... And if handing it on to the next generation is so important, how do we go about doing that in a God-honoring way? So really quickly, before we jump into that, what is our legacy? And I won't spend long on this because Leon really unpacked this a couple of weeks ago. But we use that memory verse, if you recall, from Ephesians. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in this, Paul is reminding the Ephesians, your primary identity in Christ. You are created by him. You are a walking work of art, is the original kind of feel behind that. And this morning, you may feel a million miles away from being a walking work of art. You may feel useless, inconsequential even. But there's a promise and there's a truth being declared here But that's not what God has made you for. That's not what God has designed you for. He's designed you to fulfill his purposes. And he's equipped you to do that. And I think sometimes in church culture, we we get caught up with buzzwords sometimes. And we we, we say, we look for our 
calling? What is my calling? And sometimes we can kind of sit back and wait for Morgan Freeman-like voice down from heaven to say, your calling, my son, is, is this. Let me, this is coming, I think, from experience now and also reading and researching, but I, I, I personally think that it's, if God has equipped us and we have our identity in Christ, that if you know what your gifts are this morning, if you know how God has equipped you, if you are aware of your talents, if you are aware of your passions, if you know what lights your fire, if I can use that term on a Sunday morning, but if you know what that is, I would suggest to you that you know what your calling is already. You don't need to be told what your calling is. You just need to step into what God has already equipped you to do. Another good question to ask ourselves, not just as individuals, but as a church, is, is the world a better place for our being in it? Our legacy, speaking Jesus into people's lives, speaking God into people's lives, pointing people to a better way of life. Not in a life coach sort of way, but the true meaning of life is found only in him. Being practical, serving the the orphan and the widow is reminded so often. So that's our legacy. That's a very quick snapshot of, of the life that we're kind of called to lead. So if that is what we're called to do, how do we hand that on? And it's a great piece of scripture that I, I kind of, um, I have to be honest, I kind of stumbled across it a number, a number of weeks ago now. I was working at home, um, and I was actually working for those of you not that. And I, I, I broke for lunch, and, and, uh, and I just picked my Bible up. and was kind of just doing that random reading thing that you do. And I came across this passage of Scripture, and for some reason it got under my skin. So much so, this doesn't happen very often, but so much so I had to go out for a walk and kind of think about it and digest it. And these are really David's last recorded kind of words to Solomon. Let me just read the first part of this. It's from 1 Kings 2. Uh, it starts at verse 2, I think. Um, So, when David's time to die was near, he told his son Solomon, I am going the way of all the earth, so be strong. Show yourself a man. Do what the Lord your God tells you. Walk in his ways. Keep all his laws and his word by what is written in the law of Moses. Then you will do well in all that you do and in every place you go. And then the Lord will keep his promise to me. So, he's saying to Solomon, you get this right. There's a promise made to me that will continue to be fulfilled. He said to me, David, your sons must be careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and soul. And if they do, you'll never be without a man on the throne of Israel. For you theologians out there, you know, I don't want to take this too much out of context and read too much into it because some of this is a promise that's specific to David. So I'm going to just part that there. But what I will say is there are some real principles and values in here that are important to us today in this whole area of handing, uh, handing uh, our legacy, our inheritance, on to the next generation. And David is now coming to the end of his reign. He's been on the throne, throne for 40 years or so. And he's now actually already started to hand the kingdom over. Solomon is, is effectively king here now. And what he's doing in this passage, I think, he's saying to, 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 um, to uh, Solomon, this is the bare minimum that you need to do to maintain the legacy that God has left me and I am now handing on to you. To sustain it, what God is working out in your, in your life and in this, in this case the kingdom, in this case our church, these are kind of the DNA bits. These are the bare minimum kind of requirements. 
And the first thing that David does, which is really interesting, before he goes into the whole list of things, he says, Solomon, son, I'm going the way of all the earth. He's reminding Solomon of his mortality, the temporary nature of life. And we live in a culture that is obsessed with prolonging life and denying even the signs of aging. I read a statistic this morning, US alone, in, in, in uh, I think 2010, $6.6 billion, billion dollars spent just purely on cosmetic surgery. A huge percentage of that, and I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but it was a big percentage of that between 13 and 19-year-old girls. Prolonging your looks before you even left your teens. It's a very, very sobering, sobering thought. And we, we spend loads of money on, on, in the UK on, on lotions and potions. My favourite has to be Oil of Ule or Oil of Ole, whatever it's called now. Do you know that one? Covers the six, seven signs of ageing. What are they? What exactly are these seven signs of ageing? To me, to date, the seven signs of ageing have been less hair, more guts, and a propensity to repeat the same story to my children about my childhood over and over and over and over again. I know of no cream that's going to solve that problem. <laughs> Not a one. If you can find a cream that does that, I will buy it. Um, and, I, I even, and, and the stuff that creeps up on you, that I was out a few weeks ago, with, uh, a few months ago, sorry, with my, my two little girls and my wife, and we're driving through Old Hill, just down the Old Hill Bypass, and I used to go to Heathfield High School, quality education there. Come on. <laughs> And I went to Heathfield, and um, as we were driving, when I was at school, the, the, the actual playing fields themselves used to kind of go down to the main high street, and so there was a bypass through there. It's been built as, as the years have rolled on. There's a housing estate there. I can't believe it. With no irony, no cynicism, just pure nostalgia, I sit in a car like this, and I turn around to my kids, and I say, when I were a lad, all this was fields. <laughs> I actually said, though, and as they came out of my mouth, I thought, dear Lord, I'm compo from last of the summer wine. <laughs> Overnight. But, <laughs> no, following that. So, but, but what David is communicating here to Solomon is the importance of now. The importance of you have this moment in time and it is finite. And again, Leon, I am referencing some of those themes. Brought out the armchair for those of you who are here, the most dangerous household object. If you're stuck in that thing, you're onto not a good thing. And it really resonated with me. The times I've sat flicking channels watching reruns of Blockbuster. What, what is the point of that? And the time just goes away from us. And he's reminding Solomon, he's saying, Solomon, live for now. Live for now. And then he continues, and he says, he says to Solomon, now that I've told you I'm going the way of the earth, I want you to remember, I want you to be brave. Some translations say I want you to be strong. I want you to obey God. I want you to walk in his ways. And David, I think here, as, a, as an old king to a new king, as one generation to the next generation, as a dad to his kid, is communicating some core values of what it means to be a follower of God and to live out your legacy. And he's speaking critically from experience. He's saying to truly follow God, to walk in his ways, to live a life that is honouring to God, where the road that you walk and I walk and we will walk, and the decisions that we make are informed, inspired by God, 
And that where we act out of obedience to God, this will require you, Solomon, to have strength. It will require you, Solomon, to have courage. And David has experienced this firsthand. He was a teenager when he walked out onto a battlefield to face the giant warrior. Was he scared? Was there any sense of nervousness in him? I think there may have been. But he recognized the power of what it meant to obey and to be faithful to God. And he was communicating out of experience to him. And Solomon would have known these stories and just what God had done through his father. And there's, there's, here there's authenticity in the words of David to his son. This older generation is not passing empty words on. He's passing authentic words of experience on. David has seen incredible highs, tragic, gut-wrenching lows. And here David is reminding Solomon from a lifetime of experience what it takes to stay on track, to stay in the game. And there's a sense that he's saying, son, if you want to receive this legacy, you want to receive this kingdom well, if you want to maintain it, build on it, remember, time is short. Take some responsibility. In a sense, man up. Take ownership of what God has placed in you. Take some risks. Be brave, but above all, stay close and keep seeking God. And I think for us today as a church, not only should those values resound with us of obedience, faithfulness, courage, but if you're like me, and I do count myself as part of an older generation now, I do, and you want to speak into the life of another generation, there is an incredible weight that comes with your experience. As the years roll on, you will face loss the older that you get. You will face frustration, relational difficulties. You're going to struggle with your own failings. You're going to mess it up. You're going to screw it up. You're going to have issues with your own sinful nature. But to be able to say to somebody starting out in life that God is faithful, out of that experience, that God is good. To have that gift that God has given you to be able to look backwards and see his guiding hand in your life. There is incredible weight in that. It is an incredibly profound thing to be able to do and say. And it's out of that that you can legitimately say to, to, to the younger guys and to the next generation, do you know what? I know God is good because in my loss I found peace. I know God is good because that period of time for 10 years where I was completely away from God, God called me back and he's faithful to me. There is power out of that testimony. And guys, never underestimate the power of your stories. They're not just for the unbelievers. They're for us within this building right now to encourage each other and to pull and draw stuff out of each other. So we set that scene with, 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 um, with Solomon. And then the passage kind of changes focus a, li a little bit. And I have to say, when I read this, I struggled. It was one of those weird Old Testament moments. We go, what in the world is going on here? So I'm going to read it to you. Um, the words may not come out from some... <laughs> right, but let's see how we go with some of these names. Let me read this to you, and then we'll kind of unpack it a bit. So this is the next section down in, 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 in uh, 1 Kings 2. Now you, so now you know what Zariah, or Zariah's son, Joab, did to me. You know what he did to the two captains of the armies of Israel. He killed Abner, the son of Ner, the Amazar, the son of Jether, in the time of peace, as if it were in the time of war. 
He put the blood of war on his belt and on the shoes of his feet. So, act with wisdom. Critical. Act with wisdom. Solomon is famous for wisdom later on. Do not let his grey hair go down to the, ground, uh, to the grave in peace. Then he moves on. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadites. Yeah. Let them be among those who eat at your table. For they helped me when I ran from your brother Absalom. See, there is with you Shimei, or Shimei, the son of Gerard the Benjamite of Barurim. It was he who spoke bad words against me on the days that I went to that word. Um, but when he came down to me at the Jordan, I promised him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. So do not let him go without being punished. For you are a wise man. There's that theme again. You will know what you should do. Bring his grey hair down to the grave with blood. It's difficult. And I read this at one lunchtime in the middle of my day. And I was like, what is going on? But it's one of those things that got under my skin. Some, I just could, something stuck with me. So I actually went out for, for a walk. And I was just kind of thinking, thinking over this passage. And, and I kind of, God... Um, whether it was, you know, I had that sense that God was saying a specific word about what this, this passage is all about. What has happened here is that at some point, both Joab and Shimei have committed a crime, in case of Joab, murder. And as king, it was David's responsibility as the judge to pass judgments, to punish them. And equally, Barzillai had shown David kindness. And David now, for some reason, wants to extend that kindness to Barzillai's family. So what is this all about? Why is this here, immediately after David does this great talk about what it means to be a follower of God, obeying courage, and all that kind of good stuff, then suddenly he's turning around and it's getting quite Old Testament. What he's saying here is, Solomon, there's unfinished business. There's business that I, in this case, should have finished in my generation, but I would stretch that to say there's business that we, in our generation, that we're not meant to actually finish. But we'll talk about that in a moment. But this is really about unfinished business. So for whatever reason, David didn't carry out either the punishment or return the kindness. He's now passing that to Solomon. And this is a really, really important step here. Because what David is doing is empowering Solomon to not only continue his legacy, this is what you need to do to maintain my legacy so that you can maintain the promise that God has, has made, uh, given to me, but he's, he's now saying to him, and you can choose how you follow through. Be wise, it says further up there. You will know what you should do. David here is allowing Solomon to take the lead. He's making space and giving stuff for Solomon to do, for Solomon to start to take responsibility for the legacy that was part of David's lifetime. Now he's passing that on in here to a new generation. And to use that Olympic image that we spoke to before, that, that sense of what actually that handing, the, handing the baton on, or in the case of this was handing the torch on, to do that, two things had to happen. Firstly, in the case of the, of the, of the torch, when Steve Redgrave handed it, he had to let go. He'd been very embarrassing if he was doing this as they were taking it. He had to let go of that. But equally, the next generation had to pick it up. And then they had to run with it alone. There was a transition that took place there. And that transition is happening here. 
And this is so, so critical for us as a church. And this is part of our DNA as a church. And I hope to God it will always be a part of our DNA as a church. Because even though we as this generation have lessons that we've learned and, 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 um, and, and stuff that God has spoken into our lives and all the rest of it, we still have to actively equip our next generation. We have to actively engage in their lives. We have to actively speak into their lives. And then we have to actively let them go and to pick up their purposes for their generation. And there is a real tension in doing this. Real tension. There are a couple of tensions that occur with this. If you want somebody from one generation to move into the roles of the next generation, that role has to be left open. I'm a worship leader here, been a worship leader here for, for, for a number of years, as you know. Ten years ago, I would have probably held on. I like doing this. I quite enjoy doing this. But now the older I get, and the more I understand God, and the more I understand what God's purposes are, not just for me, but for this church, it's an honor to be able to step back and to leave the space for people to step into. But it's difficult. It's difficult. You could feel, if you're the person doing that, redundant. You could feel that you're, you've hit kind of your, 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 your self-idate. But I don't think this can be further from the truth. If we, and if you and I, are spiritually mature, we'll see that we have experience. We'll understand that we have spiritual insight because God has taught us that through the journey of life. And if we're truly serious about extending the kingdom, truly serious of this body of believers existing beyond us now and into generations 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years from now. Our vision will not only be for us to equip the next generation. Our vision will not only be for us to have the, um, the ability to step out of certain roles and allow people to fill them. Our vision will be for us to pray that they exceed anything that we ever did in this generation. And we have to entrust them and release them to do that. There's another tension here as well, though, that when you let go of stuff and you allow, you know, when you start to bring in different generations and different ways of doing things, things can get a little messy. And we don't do change well as people, let alone churches. Businesses don't do change very well either. Change is a difficult thing. But one thing you have to, we have to remember we should never com- confuse the methods that have been used with the heart and the goal of, of what we are trying to achieve. Let me show you something to kind of visualize that and just put this slide up. Anybody know what that is? Anybody? Sonny Walkman? Apart from chewing up your cassettes, what is that for? Somebody said, no idea, I must be anywhere less than 1982. Um, yeah, playing music, kind of, and it's mobile on the go and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so it plays, its fundamental purpose is to play music while you're on the go. What's the next one? MP3 player, iPod, what does it do? Plays music, exactly. It does, fundamentally, its value, its identity, Its function and its purpose has not changed one iota from 1982 to 2012. Hasn't changed once. Visually it's changed. Efficiency may have changed. 
The delivery of the music may have changed, but fundamentally, it's the same deal. And I think for us, I think for us as a church and as believers, that's a really important thing for us to hold on to. Hold on to our values, our DNA, who we are, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Make sure those are communicated. But then recognize that things can still be different and not lose the integrity of who we are as a community of believers. But I would also say that actually, I'm talking this stuff, this isn't anything new for us as a church. We've been a church here now for 33 plus years. A lot of you, maybe you newer guys don't know, but it started in almost as a very small house group, and over the 30-odd years, it's extended to what you see today. And what's happened there over those years from that small beginning is that the vision, the DNA, the basis of who we are, the integrity of who we are, and what we want to see God done in this community hasn't changed, but multiple generations have picked up on that legacy. And the values, the desire for God to be glorified, to extend grace and compassion to people hasn't changed. But new things have been birthed. Unfinished business that started 33 years ago is now completed. We are building buildings and buying buildings and renovating buildings. There's new ministries being developed. There's new inroads into our community being birthed. They would never dreamed of 33. They would have dreamed of them, but they didn't see them. And now we start to see them, and we will see beyond that. Children in Zambia today are being fed, are alive and well, because of the DNA of who we are, then how the legacy and the generations have held on to that and built on that. So I say young people this morning, older people, new believers, whatever generation you're in, you are both the receiver of a legacy and the creator of a legacy at the same time. But I would say, specifically speaking to the, to, to the, the, to the next generation, to some degree, and the next generations is not just one, um, the values and the foundations you're going to inherit will come with responsibility. As David said to Solomon, and there will be things that we and I, in our generations, we're not going to complete in this season. There will be people we would love to impact. There are going to be lives that we would love to see turn around to Christ. There will be ideas and initiatives and ministries and creative stuff and all that kind of good stuff that may be not for our generation, but they are for your generation. They're for you potentially to fulfill, fulfill. So, if that's you, then like Solomon, take the inheritance seriously. Pursue God. Obey him. Be brave. Take some risks and step out. Look for un finished business and I want to kind of just leave one other quick thought with you it's a little digression but please please bear with me on this because I think it was something I, I felt was really important for us to share and it's still talking into legacy because there's a risk sometimes when you do a talk like this it's the seven guides to a great legacy you do step one step two step three step four and everything turns out all right There's a reality here that the purposes of God that we are called to fulfill in our generation are exactly that. They're God's purposes. We are called to be obedient. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be God-honoring. We're called to reach a broken world. We will do everything we possibly can to do that in the best way that we see fit. 
But sometimes God's purposes don't align with our aspirations. And there will be things that we don't quite understand in life. And there will be things that we face that actually we're not going to really know the answers to, to the other side of heaven. But I want to read you a story of a guy back at the turn of the, uh, of the century that really, for me, just as we draw kind of to a close and we start to talk about communion and, and just worship together as, as, as a family, that this life, to me, encapsulated both what it meant to be obedient to God, to live a life of legacy, of, of, of purpose, and also just to see what God can achieve through, to- through, through things that this guy never imagined would happen. Let me read this to you. In 1904, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. As heir to the Borden family fortune, he was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world. As the young man travelled through Asia, the Middle East and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. 16. Finally, Bill Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. And one one of his friends uh, expressed disbelief that, to quote, Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. Bill responded, and he wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Even though young, Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905, trying to look just like any other freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him. And it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of them wrote, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. It's not about age. Maturity is not about age. And and I love this, what his his mate said. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ Jesus and really done it. He'd really given his life in full surrender. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it began. It was well on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, and soon after a fourth. The time was spent in prayer, and after a brief reading of Scripture, scripture, Bill's handling of Scripture was really helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim the promise with assurance. Borden's small morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus. Remember, this is a teenager. In Yale, Cambridge, Oxford equivalent in the US. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such places. Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the Yale campus. He cared about widows and orphans and the disabled. He rescued drunks from the streets of New Haven. To try to rehabilitate them, he founded the Yale Hope Mission. He's a teenager still. He's founding missions One of Bill Borden's friends wrote that he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night, on the street, in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead him to Christ. And it continues, Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people of China. 
Once he'd fixed his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered. He also challenged his classmates to consider missionary service. One of them said of him, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known. He put a backbone into the rest of us at college, critical. Who he was, his identity in Christ, generated something in the people around him. He put a backbone into them, which is a great expression. There was real iron in him. And his, his friend says, I always felt he was a stuff of martyrs heroic minis- uh, her- and heroic missionaries of modern times. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. And in his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreats. He was focused on what God had spoke to him when he was 16. He now is a, is, a, is a young man in his 20s. William Borden went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. When he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. And this is really interesting. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, 25-year-old William was dead. Sobering. But let's read on. When the news of William Whiting Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., The story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. I love this. His biographer, Mary Taylor, wrote, A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself. And he did it in a way that was so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. I wish I have a life like that. And the writer finishes here. Was Borden's untimely death a waste? No. Not in God's perspective. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he said, no regrets. He knew how to leave a great legacy. His age, the trappings of his wealth, the distractions of his friend around them, he ignored them and just carried straight on. And the epitaph on his grave in Egypt is something I want to leave us with this morning. It really resonated with me. It says, apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. You can argue that we here, 2012, little town in Hales Owen, can we live a life that's as dramatic and as bold and as full of the visions and stories that you kind of see here? Do you know what? I don't think William was thinking he was leading a great, dramatic life. I think he was just saying... And acting out what David said to Solomon, obey him, be faithful to him, show courage, take some risks, walk in his ways. You know what your gifts are, step into them, William. And he did that. And just as I close and the guys come up and pick up with the communion, my prayer for us this morning, for me, for you, for us as a community of faith and of believers, and whatever, I don't care, whatever generation you're from, that somewhere in our DNA, in the legacy that we pass on, and the legacy that we receive and we build on, we'll have that sense of abandonment to God, of courage and faith, that willingness to confront the hurt of the world and to embrace the broken, to live a life that's so radical that all that can be said of any one of us and this church will be that without faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. Won't you stand with me? We'll pray.
Father God, they're big, dramatic stories. And we, we look at these great men of God that lead these, lead, lead these radical lives. But God, it reminded me again, just even as I was saying the words, that these guys didn't think they were living great, radical lives. They were just normal people. Like the disciples, fishermen, tax collectors. But they were empowered by the Spirit of God. And that with that empowerment, they committed themselves to use whatever giftings that they had, whatever talents that they were given, Father God. And in that place, in that space, knowing the temporary nature of what's around us, or them, they moved forward and they stepped in to who they were, they understand their identity, and they recognized that there was a great commission for them to fulfill. God, this morning for Zion Christian Center, for every man, woman, child across the generations, not one of us is useless. Not one of us does not have something of incredible, eternity-lasting relevance and profundity. Not one of us, every single one of us in this building is invested in with the Spirit of God. God wants to use us. And so, Father God, no matter what challenges come our way, and we will all get them, we will face distraction, we will face hurt, we will face heartache, we will face celebration and the great, you know, the majestic worship of God sometimes. No matter what, Father, I want my epitaph. I want the epitaph on this fellowship, this community of brothers and sisters, this church to be that this bunch of people lived a life that was so amazing, so radical, so life-changing that without explanation, it could only be Christ. Christ.